Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we are being spooky all season, and I'm sort of dragging Karen into this a little bit, um, but I enjoy it, so everybody else must. Um, I'm Lauren Humphreys Brooks. With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. Uh, so we have lots of exciting things to, to talk about today, but first I wanted to ask, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing Okay. I set my out-of-office message on my email yesterday because I am off for a week. Must be nice. It is. I mean, this is, with my contract at my regular job, I have a certain number of days that I have to take off unpaid. So it's not paid vacation time, but it is unpaid non-work time. <laughs> so I, I mean, take it. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So... And I don't really specifically have any plans. I mean, it's kind of weird because I got invited to several movie screenings for this upcoming week. And, you know, we get screening invites a lot where they'll have multiple uh, time options. Like, oh, you can see it on this day at, you know, whatever time. And, you know, because I have a day job, I'm always looking for the evening screenings. And there were three movies this week that I got invitations to that the screenings were only during the day. And I was just like, oh, I can actually do this. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. That's nice. Yeah. Well, before before we get going on our, our episode topic, which today is vampires, which I am like insanely excited <laughs> about. You don't even know. You don't even know how excited I am about I this. have a feeling. <laughs> um, we wanted to talk really briefly about, um, well, I, I think generally about box office and how we're talking about box office and but specifically about the last duel yeah. uh which is the new ridley scott film that just came out right um and and has not done has gotten sort of mixed i think critical response there's been a lot of positive response there's been a lot of people who said like it's well made but it's got serious problems you definitely felt that it has serious problems in in your review on our site uh but this this one has not done well, particularly at the box office, even for um, a film like this being released, you know, kind of a, wherever we are in this pandemic, still in the middle of a pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So what were your thoughts on that? So, well, it's interesting because people are, are trying to, because Halloween Kills, conversely, is doing very well at the box office. And so people are, you know, it's understandable. You try to find correlations and causation and stuff like that when you're looking at numbers. And so they're trying to make the argument that the last stool only getting $1.5 million on Friday, um, or something like that. Maybe it's 1.8. I don't know. It's less than 2 million. <laughs> uh, but that that shows that really people will only go to the theater to watch movies that, 
are existing IP, that are sequels, that are characters that we already know about, and that they won't go see something that's new and, and untested. And I say that that's bullshit. Um, I think that, that there is some tiny degree of truth to that with certain things. Like, I think that, that, that wanting to see something familiar is part of what fuels the success of a movie like Halloween Kills, but I don't think it's what's killed a movie like The Last Duel, which is directed by Ridley Scott and is co-written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, who also star in the movie alongside Adam Driver. So even if you don't, even if regular audiences still don't know Jodie Comer very well or Nicole Hall of Center, who's the other co-writer for it, you still have three dudes that audiences know very, very well and have seen a lot of their original film, you know, work in the past. And so I think that what this comes down to is people just didn't want to see this movie, at least not right now. <laughs> Um, and, and I think that, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, sure. It has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes and there are only a few of us that have actually come out and said, no, this is actually pretty bad. But I think that the, the general viewing public looks at that and go, and they hear even the people who say, yeah, it's good. They hear what they're liking about it. And they're like, I just don't want to give my money to that right now. So mm -hmm. they're not going. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, and we're in a particular kind of bubble because we're on film Twitter, we're like, you know, engaged with film, we're paying a lot of attention to films that are being released, things like that. So we know about it. You know, I've seen a number of trailers just on Instagram, <laughs> like yeah. scrolling through Instagram, seeing trailers for The Last Duel. But I, I have to say that whenever I've told First of all, there are a lot of people that I know outside of, of the film community that had no idea that Ridley Scott was releasing a new film to begin with. But then you say, okay, well, it's a medieval drama, okay, directed by Ridley Scott, all right, with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And immediately people are like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, yeah. because when it, I mean, just saying that, before you even get into the description of what it's, what it's actually about, right, you're just like, why are Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in a medieval fant like fantasy story? Like there is, what is that? Like, I don't even know how to how to process that, right? Adam Driver a little bit less. So like, okay, yeah, I can see that, but Ben Affleck and Matt Damon not so much. And then you actually get into like, well, it's about it's about a woman who's been raped, and and it's about like her husband challenging the the rapist to a duel in order to kind of prove that that this has been raped and the second you say that it's just like oh that's i don't want to see that like yeah. that's immediately the response and and i think that we really need to to note that this is a two and a half hour film by the way um that's being released in a pandemic it is a ridley scott medieval epic ridley scott has not done great in terms of box office with with his medieval epics starring two dudes that are box office draws but are in no way associated with this kind of film right um about a subject that gives a lot of people myself included pause like none of this i think so i i think that there's this tendency particularly within the film community to insulate themselves a great deal in order to be like you know what are what are regular people actually wanting to go see meanwhile you compare that to something like halloween kills yes it's a sequel to a well-known franchise okay it's also october Right. And it's a slasher film 
being released in the middle of October. And it's like, it's, it's a reasonable length. You know, we, a lot of people really liked the, um, the, the last installment into this franchise, all of this. And it's like, okay, well, if I have a choice between, you know, a 90 minute film that I know at the very least is going to be enjoyable. It might not be good, but it's going to be enjoyable or a two and a half hour medieval epic about rape. I think I know what I'm going to choose in that particular circumstance. So yeah, we, we need to really pull back on, oh, this, you know, and there's always this tendency to be like, oh, this indicates the end of blah. Yeah. Right. And it's like, I don't, I don't really think that it does. And I also have to say really Scott has not had a great track record with his current, with his most recent releases in terms of the quality of the films. No, like he still makes uh, well-constructed movies. And there are things about the last duel that are like, well, that's, that's really well done, but it's the stories. He struggles with the stories and you know, he's not writing them. Mostly he's got, you know, other people writing, writing these. And well, and even with the last duel, like what Nicole Hall of Center does is, is good. And it's like, I really wish like if they had cut an hour out of it, made it an hour and a half, even, you know, hour 45 or so, but really just had it be written by Nicole and have it focused on Jodie Comer's character, Marguerite, it could have actually been a decent movie that could have really drawn people in. You also got to cut out Ben and Matt from the, the cast. Like, it's <laughs> in a different movie altogether. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, the whole middle section, which he wrote, which is really, it's Adam Driver's character's point of view. And Ben Affleck has major part in that. And it's just like, this is not, like, what is going on? Like, we just had... Like, I have whiplash from how much this just changed, and yeah, it's very odd, but, but yeah, I I don't know. Like, even, I mean, Ben actually kind of would have worked, I mean, if the, the tone of the movie altogether had been different, but Matt is so, so out of his depth, and, like, his accent keeps changing, it's sort of kind of British a little bit. And sort of kind of French almost occasionally, but mostly just like kind of like not even quite American. I don't know. I don't know what was going on with it. And I know the British accent technically didn't exist as we know it back in the 1300s, but. (laughs) Well, does this take place in like France or something like that? Yes. So so why? Why why would it be British? Because in (laughs) movies. People do not like the French accent. And so when you have a movie set in France, they still want everyone to sound British. <laughs> also, also, I have to say, I would I would pay good money to hear Ben Affleck and Matt Damon try to do French accents for an entire film. Like, that, I would actually go see that. Like, that's... I must say, I think that would attract me to this more than anything else. Yeah. There, there were times I was like, what... What is he doing? <laughs> so, but yeah, this movie, it's like, I do not walk out of movies... And go read my review, because I, I get into yeah. it, you know, pretty pretty clearly. But um, I don't ever walk out of movies, and I have never left a screening. This was the movie that almost made me do it. Because I was wow. just so frustrated by how they were doing it. And I was, you know, I was like, partway through, we're still in the first section, which is Matt Damon's. And I was just like... 
I kept thinking about, and, and you know, I definitely reference this too, but I kept thinking about like all the marketing materials, the story of one woman who defied a nation. I'm like, this woman hasn't even spoken yet. She hasn't had a single line of dialogue. Yeah. And we're like 20, 30 minutes into this movie. Like, what is well, going and- on here? And and that's that's the other thing. If you're gonna tell a story, I mean, we talked. We even talked about this way back when this film was announced, right? Yeah. Um, but if you're gonna tell a story that is very focused on a woman's rape, right? That that is kind of the central issue of the, of the film. Um, and the first three names on the marquee are all male. Yeah. That's a problem. That's already a problem because you're essentially saying like, okay, this the story is about a woman, but it's not really about a woman. It's about the men in her life and the men reacting to it and how this affects the men and it's like well how many how many films and stories have you seen about men dealing with the rape of women mm-hmm. um and you know again it's it's the kind of thing particularly right now when we've had these you know years and years now of conversations about rape about the treatment of women we have these issues that are just right there in the front of our minds really um in in the real world right and then, to, you know, you have something like Promising Young Woman coming out last year to have then we're going to tell a story and it's it's going to be a male director, male writers and centralizing male figures that I mean, it's going to turn me off. It's something that I didn't want to see particularly. And then your review and a number of the a number of other things that I've heard about it is basically made, made me go, like, all right, I don't need to see this. There is no reason for me to, you know spend two and a half hours of my life with this movie and I, I i don't think that i'm that odd in that no no definitely not and you know i don't tell people not to go watch movies you know i feel like people should form their own opinions but this is one that i will actively tell people unless you are burning with desire to go see this please just don't waste your time mm-hmm. yeah well, there you go. So maybe let's not use The Last Duel as like a, a barometer for whether or not people are willing to go see, uh, you know, original stories or whatever. Um, so don't compare what's happening at the box office now to what was happening six months ago. Yeah. Because the world looks different than it did six months ago. We're up to 80% of this country of eligible people are vaccinated. That wasn't the case back in, you know, June when In the Heights came out or whatever, you know? So, like, look at what's going on now with certain movies and go, oh, look at that. Halloween Kills did a good job. And this is, like, pre-pandemic numbers. This is probably what we would have seen with or without the pandemic. But don't use that to try to, you know, write the obituary for other films. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, so I think that we are now going to move to the topic of the day, uh, which is a much more general topic in a lot of ways than what we've been talking about the past couple of episodes, just because I'm like, let's talk about this. I want to talk about this because it's spooky season and this is my favorite monster. Um, so let's talk about vampires. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Karen, first of all, how much do you love vampires? Like the most, right? (laughs) Um, definitely not as much as you. <laughs> and I don't know. I I have this fascination with vampires, but I personally... <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to explain this, actually, this morning. I was thinking about it. And, like, I just have a mistrust in general toward men. 
obviously, but also just toward people that are, um, like, seducers, you know? Like, I mm-hmm. automatically just go, what do you really want? Like, what, is, what, <laughs> what are you after? And the thing about vampires is that's the ultimate, like... That's, <laughs> like, that's kind of what they do, yeah. <laughs> exactly, that's all they do, is they seduce for their own ulterior motives. And so it's like, I just... I find vampire stories fascinating, but I don't love them because I automatically am just like, why, why are you people trusting this? Why, why are you not asking some questions here? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that that's actually a really good jumping off point to, to start with, because one of the things that I wanted to talk about is this kind of, it's a, vampires in popular culture really represent a lot of, in, a lot of diverse and interesting things, I think. Um, and one of them is this this uh, this concept of the seducer, right? The um, and this this is really started uh, by the 1931 Dracula in terms of cinematic representations of vampires. Um, there are a number of vampire stories that take place earlier than that, including Nosferatu, and there's also I think an earlier um, Danish film that's an adaptation of the of a vampire story but has been mostly lost so we really just have you know a little bit of information about it so Nosferatu is kind of the first vampire um the first adaptation of Dracula which isn't an adaptation at all but then 1931 Dracula which is actually a uh, an adaptation of the stage play um is pretty much the the go-to thing when we talk about vampires that's one of the first things that we think of is Bela Lugosi and the cape and the you know the dark hair and the pale face all of that stuff that's very like it's quintessential Dracula right mm-hmm. um the and count from Sesame Street is based on him yeah exactly exactly so it's interesting to look at at Lugosi because Lugosi in the 31 Dracula and in also the Spanish language version of the 31 Dracula, which is made using the same sets and around and at the same time. Um, the figure of the vampire is very much the seducer. It's he's also he infiltrates, right? He's able to, you know, so he's not out of place in a drawing room. He's not out of place at an opera or at a ballet. Uh, he's very elegant. He's different, right? So there's this foreignness to him. Um, and definitely in Lugosi's case, it's the, the the heaviness of his accent, his appearance, et cetera. He's attractive, but he's also different from the other men on the screen. Um, and so he is this, he's infiltrating society, essentially. He's able to uh, be in a drawing room. He's able to be in all of these spaces, even though he is this blood-sucking undead who has been alive for centuries, right? And that's, that's the concept that's behind him. And it's an interesting contrast to actually to something like Nosferatu, sort of the other representation of vampires, which if you watch Murnau's Nosferatu, that dude cannot infiltrate anywhere, right? He is, he's, he's bald, he's got pointy ears, he's got, you know, long rat-like teeth, etc. There is no way that this, this is a, you know, he's visually a monster. We know that he's a monster from the minute he steps onto the screen. Um, and it's kind of, a, you kind of wonder, like, why would anyone trust this, this person? Because he is on screen with other people and a lot of the time. <laughs> but so you've got this interesting contrast between that representation of vampires, which is very monstrous and very frightening and, you know, very much the walking corpse. 
and kind of the more classic now version of vampires, which is the represented by Lugosi. Um, so it is that that su that seducer that like you know it isn't just that he's he's not just going to suck your blood. He is going to turn you into something like him. He's going to seduce the women away. Um, he's going to he is this representation of of sex and death basically. Um, I don't really have anything to add because you said it so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, but so that that's one of the things that, that vampires tend to represent in cinema is well, this, think, yeah, this sexuality. Sorry. Yeah, go on. Well, I was just going to say, I think this is a good time for me to ask you, like, what is it about vampires that that really draw you in? Why do you love <laughs> this genre so much? And, and where did that start for you? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I think I've mentioned this before. Um, it started for me when I was like four years old <laughs> and and Dracula scared the hell out of me, basically. Um, I saw Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and Dracula is in it. Lugosi's Dracula is in it. And he frightened me. He just absolutely, the, the concept of a guy who can turn into a bat, um, who like sleeps in a coffin, like that entire concept really, really scared me. And so that's sort of where it, it started for me. This is... This is something like I, I read Dracula when I was a teenager, absolutely adored it. I read, you know, I, after that, I read Polidori's The Vampire, Carmilla, etc. A lot of the vampire novels. Um, interestingly enough, I have no interest in Anne Rice, which, <laughs> which I is, is just, I think it's not quite the vampires that I dig, but um, <laughs> I know a lot of people do. <clears throat> I never read any Anne Rice, so. <laughs> I've only seen Interview with the Vampire. I'm not surprised somehow. <laughs> but I mean, even those vampires are very, you know, there's definitely um, a relationship between the representation of those vampires and, and Dracula and Christopher Lee's version of Dracula, etc. Um, but it is that that attractiveness of the vampire. I, I think that the vampire, for a lot of people, and probably myself included, really does represent this sort of danger. Um and that notion of, of fluid sexuality. I, I wrote about Dracula, the, the book, and then I also wrote about the play in the film um, as part of my undergraduate dissertation. And one of the things that comes up time and time again when you talk about the vampire is this fact that the, the vampires, this is gonna sound weird, the vampire's sexuality is located in their mouth, right? Everything, basically, and in fact, number, a number of people talk about how the vampire is essentially, it doesn't matter basically from the neck down. The vampire doesn't count as non-sexual in a lot of ways, which gets used in, in some um, versions of, in some representations of vampirism. Um, in these representations of vampiric sexuality, that there is this, this fluidness. So the vampire becomes, you know, both, in a certain sense, both, you know, in a binary sense, both male and female. Um, female vampires can penetrate. Male vampires can be penetrated because you've got this orality of the mouth and all of that. And I think that that's one of the things that is very attractive about representations of vampires because there is this dangerousness to them, the fact that they're transgressive, um, the fact that, you know, they are these seducers, etc. And they're also capable of being very, very frightening. Um, and they can be representative of a lot of different things, depending upon the film, depending upon the story that is being told about them. And Dracula kind of um, 
absorbs all of the different representations. He is representative of the fluid sexuality. He's representative of um, the foreign other, right? That danger to, to you know, modern mainstream society. Um, he's also representative of this concept of a plague, right? The, the idea of a blood disease comes up again and again in stories of vampires. Um, even to the point that in, in uh, films like Nosferatu and then Herzog's uh, adaptation, like new version of Nosferatu, you've got, you know, he's very associated with rats and spiders and, and insects, etc. Um, and so you've got all of these different things that you can put into the vampire and come out with either very scary, disturbing walk, walking corpses or these very attractive seducers and sometimes both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too, because vampires are really the only monster that we equate with sex at all. You know, like nobody's, yeah. nobody's like trying to get with Frankenstein's monster or zombies or, <laughs> you know, it's, it's um, like you said, the fluid sexuality, but just sexuality in general. And it really is such a, yeah. um, it's such an interesting way to, um, like the, you know, early vampire stories, even now, you know, it's like, there's a morality tale there too, (laughs) that I think a lot of people try to use it for, but it's also sort of this like hidden, like sinning secret world that people get caught up in. Well, and and I think that that's part of, you know, talking about this this fluidity, I think that that's part of the attractiveness of the of the vampires, the monster, because we talked about this a little bit last week as well. This idea that part of the the fun of horror, right, is is transgression, right? You yeah. are enjoying the things that you're not really supposed to enjoy. You're not supposed to enjoy watching people die, right? You're not supposed to enjoy different kinds of murders and death, but it's within this very safe, controlled environment, right? It's a film. It's fiction. Um, and and I think that the vampire represents that as well. The excitement in a vampire movie is not seeing the vampire get killed and seeing like the the, the moral world righted. It's the excitement of the vampire itself, right? You don't want to see Dracula die at the end. And even in a lot of the Dracula films, you know, you know he's going to come back in the next one because Dracula never dies, it seems. Mm. Um, and and a lot of films just really make make a lot out of that. And uh, most of that is is really growing out of the representation of Dracula in um, in the nineteen thirty in Todd Browning's nineteen thirty one film. So then later on you get um, Christopher Lee in the Hammer Dracula films, who is again very tall and elegant and good looking and dangerous, and he climbs into maidens' windows while in their while they're in their night dresses, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it's it's become a cliche at this point, right? It's no longer really scary, but there is that um, there is still that excitement about it. It's just like, oh, this is dangerous. This is frightening. This, but it's also safe. Forbidden. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's it's something. It's destructive, right? But it's also something that you kind of you kind of want. Um, and that's that's very much what the vampire represents. So yeah, I, I agree. It is one of the few monsters, one of the few kind of ubiquitous monsters, that is almost always at some point associated with sex. Um, and and you particularly see that I think in the in the fifties and sixties and then into the seventies and, and later because 
you begin to get more and more kind of uh, adaptations and representations of lesbian vampires. You get um, the Vampire Lovers, with uh, which is an adaptation of Carmilla. Um, get some of the really lurid vampire movies done by people like Annie Warhol and um, Jess Franco. Uh, and, and all of them rely on this, this concept of transgressive sexuality. So well, I just want to ask, ask you, I mean, if you're not in majorly into vampires, um, <laughs> but what are some of the vampire movies that you enjoy? Like, because they're we're talking a lot about these kind of transgressive ones, but there are others that are much, that really represent vampires as being much nastier and uglier. Well, honestly, that's one of the things I like about, um... <laughs> You're gonna laugh at me for this, but that's one of the things I like about Interview with the Vampire is like <laughs> Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt are hot in that movie, but like Tom Cruise is a scary dude. Like there are no illusions that he is a bad, bad villainous guy, you know. And and I like that because it's like even when he's seducing people, they know like they they don't. No one ever thinks that he's, like, any sort of a, you know, safe or trustworthy person. So I, I, I don't know. That's, that, I think that's why I like that. Um, plus it's just fun and watching the, I don't know if it was accidental or on purpose, but, like, the homoeroticism in that movie is just, like, <laughs> uh, so funny. I think that that's very on purpose. Um, well, I just don't know if the if the guys knew that that's what they were <laughs> signing up for. That's I, what I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think that I mean I I find it difficult. You, it'd be kind of hard to miss it. I mean, it's sort of right there. Yeah, but you know, when you're making a movie and when you see the final product, sometimes that's you true. don't really know how things are gonna look at the end. So, well, and. I think that that's an interesting thing thing to talk about. So, you know, I mentioned the, the concept of the lesbian vampire, right? The gay vampire. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that vampires, you know, even in Dracula, Dracula is represented as, as biting, right? right. Um, both men and women. So part of the danger that Dracula represents in terms of a mainstream concept is the fact that they're bisexual. Essentially, vampires are bisexual, polyamorous, um you know uh transgender even to because if you if you begin to to conceive of this as there's no binary really with vampires mm -hmm. um and that's very often treated as evil right as frightening and so that's that other side of this attraction and repulsion to the way that vampires are represented that there's a lot of bad shit basically bad elements that go into the representation of vampires. And one of them is the fact that, you know, vampires very are often represented as being, male ones are represented as being very dandyish um, and being gay, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and that that's, that's shown as being kind of evil and frightening, but also attractive at the same time. So it's this, it's a very weird relationship um, when, when you're talking about vampire movies and, um, and the way that vampires are represented, because on the one hand, we're meant to, to feel horror at these monsters and we're meant to kind of celebrate at the end of the story when the hero stakes the vampire, when 
the the hero kind of wins at the end when dracula dies when um uh you know the evil vampires the sun comes up and they erupt into flames but at the same time we're also meant to be really compelled by them and to be fascinated by them so so there is that what we, what we were talking about last week that writing of the moral universe the monster has to be destroyed at the end yeah but then i love movies like a girl walks home alone at night yeah which totally takes the the vampire tropes and and kind of twists them in this case it's it's a woman basically going after bad bad men and she's the, the she's the vampire it i don't know i just i love how it takes a lot of the tropes that we know and on a lily Amirpour, am i saying her name right i yes i think so yeah she wrote and directed i think this was her very first movie if i'm not mistaken um it might not have been her first one but anyway i just i love what she is able to do with the genre and the way that she's able to turn it into this like really feminist um uh story about basically getting revenge against bad men yeah and and i think that there is that element to vampire stories that um that they're they're very they're a very flexible monster yes. um they can re- like i say they can represent a lot of different things they can represent you know pot a certain sense of positive things that identifying with the monster right which is what you're getting in um a girl walks home alone at night it's sort of it's the kind of women take back the night kind of idea and how do you do it well you do it by being a vampire by like literally murdering bad men uh-huh. um and, and it's a similar thing in uh in let the right one in the swedish yeah. vampire movie we've got this little girl who is a monster and is a vampire but she takes she makes friends with a boy and takes revenge on his bullies and protects him and that's so you you've got this kind of interesting uh interesting ways that the that the vampire figure can be can be bent can be turned can you know it doesn't have to be this um this like i say this this perfect uh you know we're gonna write the moral universe at the end maybe the vampire is actually the one who's writing the moral universe who is kind of going after the monsters um the human the very human monsters yeah. And and you definitely see more of that I think in in later vampire films. There's there's also the the element of vampires as being very tragic. Um and you get a little bit of that in things like Interview with a Vampire. Um and you get some of that in Dracula where the vampires are actually suffering, right? They they are undead. They're basically cursed to live forever. Um and in order to live forever they have to constantly feed on humanity. And that's hard. Even in the 31 Dracula, there's a line where Lugosi is talking about how there are worse things than death. And it's not a threat, particularly. It's more of a, I would really like to die, mm-hmm. um, but I can't. And, and you know, it's that constant, it's that if, if all of the human beings in the story have this drive towards death, really Dracula has this drive towards life. Even though he wants to die, he can't um because he's constant he's constantly trying to survive basically uh and and you get a lot more of that in um in like i say in later vampire stories uh let's talk about vampire on vampires on motorcycles um but when i i no actually actually talk about vampires on motorcycles um 
one of the interesting things I think that, that begins to happen is this sort of trying to make vampires okay. So yeah. you begin to get movies like Blade, mm-hmm. right? Which is sort of, okay, well, he's a vampire, but, it's not, but not really. He's a, he's a good vampire. <laughs> you begin to get movies like, you know, stories like Twilight, where you're essentially rewriting vampire, vampire concepts and mythology and making them all right, right? We're going to, we're going to make them acceptable. There's such a thing as vegetarian vampires, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and I think Twilight is the, is the worst transgressor at that level. <laughs> but For still, so there, many reasons. Yeah, but there's still this, this whole thing about like, okay, we're going to make these very attractive but evil creatures okay in some way. I, I don't know. I find it interesting to try to like, make the monsters into not basically make monsters into acceptable members of society right which it's kind of funny Uh, i don't know how much of this i should say but it's kind of funny that twilight came from stephanie meyer who was a woman who grew up in the lds community and um latter-day saints for people who aren't familiar um and which is a very that's the church I belong to. And, um, it's a very, uh, um, how do I describe it? (laughs) Not Puritan. That's not (laughs) quite it, but it's sort of, (laughs) you know, and it's like, you know, it's a very, they're driven by, by morality. And, you know, a lot of the things they teach, it's, it's really at, at its core, the church is just about becoming more like Christ and there are a lot of a lot of things that, that means to a lot of different people, but it is definitely a religion that uh, you know is very much about you know issuing premarital sex or anything like that, um, and really about you know we can always become the the best like we're working toward becoming the best version of ourselves basically and so for me reading twilight because i did read them all and i watched all the movies um even though from the beginning i was always like these are not good but it was kind of one of those things it was like i needed to know what the kids were talking about and so i just kept going with them and and it was really interesting reading that because it feels like what she is attempting to do is find a way to make these, like, like we've said, these monsters, these very sexual monsters, something that is acceptable, not just in society in general, but within this very religious society, which religion has nothing to do with the books at all. That's not, she doesn't actually overtly bring that into the story, but her her beliefs and her upbringing are very much just like imbued in the pages of it, you know? And, um, and so it's funny because you see these little things along the way where like you have Edward, who is this, you know, fine upstanding young man who is very respectful of women. And then you've got Bella, who's the aggressor. She's human, but she really wants to be a vampire and also she really wants to have sex with Edward and he's just like no 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 we can't do that unless we get married (laughs) (laughs) and so it's just so funny because it's like you can tell that she's writing these to make this this particular type of monster okay and and it's just such a it's just such a funny quirk and and it's one of those things like I don't think the Twilight 
books are good. I think that I think that there was some interesting potential there that she just didn't have the ability to to pull off. But I also think, you know, anything that gets kids reading is, is <laughs> worth, worthwhile in some, you know, has some redeeming quality about it. Now there's beeping outside. That's fun. Sorry, there's a lot of noises happening today. I don't know what's going on. But no worries. Anyway, but that's the thing about Twilight. And so it's just like, I don't know. It, and, and what it really did, what the result is, is like now you have this generation of, of girls and frighteningly 40-year-old women who now <laughs> think of vampires as being just sexy and and desirable and totally missing the point that they're insanely dangerous. Like, even the vampires <laughs> in Twilight, there are moments when they could turn and, you know, not be the natural vampires that they are. Well, and, but I think that that's what's kind of interesting about about Twilight and about the phenomenon of this, you know, what I what I would call is defanging the vampire, right? Which I think is a perfect description. Try, yeah, trying to make vampires okay. Trying to make vampire, not just that, trying to make vampires acceptable to mainstream society. And by that, I also mean just like, you know, this heteronormative elements of, of, some, of something like Twilight. Um, we're gonna make this into this big romantic story you know when you're when you're saying you know even the vampire is so non-sexual to a certain degree in that that he's you know no we have to wait for marriage right we have to so there's this very there there's this very powerful structure surrounding this vampire um and the concept of vampirism that this is how you're supposed to behave that oh vampires can act you know actually don't burst into flames because of sunlight they sparkle right Um, you know vampires are not really bothered by by crucifixes or holy ground you know all of these things that we are sort of conditioned to know about vampires a lot of which come from dracula to be honest um you know we is kind of undone or explained or changed by twilight and to to give twilight credit she does she is kind of keeping with the lore that she constructs right she's not breaking her own vampire rules right um which you know all and i think this is the time to say all vampire movies have vampire rules and sometimes they they you know like are different than the vampire rules of other films but they must always follow their own rules because if they don't you can't just decide like oh he's not hurt by crucifixes but then suddenly he is um if they're hurt by crucifixes they're always hurt by crucifixes so that's just part of the vampire vampire code is you have to follow your vampire rules but but yeah twilight sort of is, is making vampires safe and so making, again, this representation of, of very often of foreignness, of otherness, of transgressive sexuality, making them into something that is not only not transgressive, but that is completely able to be assimilated into society um, in, in a very safe and, and ultimately a very conservative way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's really what it comes down to is it's the, it's not just that they're safe for society. It's that they're especially in the case of twilight they're falling in line with a very specific moral code as well yeah um but i i mean i I don't want to place all the blame on stephanie myers for that because or or on the twilight films for that because one of because this this started long before twilight and you begin to see it happening in tv shows like buffy 
Yeah, well, honestly, um, you could even go back to um, Interview with the Vampire, where mm-hmm. as much as you've got Tom Cruise's Lestat being this, like, really clearly evil person, you've also got Brad Pitt's Louie, who does not want to be a vampire, never really wanted to be, and really does not want to kill people. And that's actually the driving force of the conflict between the two, mm-hmm. is that <laughs> Louie does not want to do what he is now constantly uh desiring like his his body craves it but he doesn't want to give in and yeah so i think that's kind of where that started i mean you know and if you go back to to these representations of transgressive sexuality and the fact that, that those vampires are very gay um <laughs> you know i don't want to do it but my body is demanding it like that's an interesting allegorical approach isn't it yeah, um uh, <laughs> Um, but it's, it's, again, it's that, it's always going back to that element of transgression that, um, your that vampires are forced almost to break the, the codes of mainstream morality. And it's a question of if they are happy to do it, then they're evil. If they're not happy to do it that, but they still do it, then they're, they're not really evil, but they're, they're sort of drug, they're sort of pulled into this world by necessity. Yeah. Um, but even like, even if you're talking about like the the bef- you know before twilight i think the the worst transgressor <laughs> when it comes down to it is francis ford coppola's adaptation of bram stoker's dracula um which massively romanticizes the vampire mm-hmm. in in a way like so the the whole concept behind dracula's attraction to and relationship with mina in that film is the fact that you know she's the reincarnation of his dead wife who he was, you know, passionately in love with and who was murdered and he like curses the church and all of this stuff. So you've got this, and it's a very weird movie. I deeply dislike Coppola's Dracula. <laughs> um, I love Gary Oldman. I think Gary Oldman is a great Dracula, but I really dislike everything that's around him. <laughs> um, I also one of- love Keanu Reeves saying Budapest. <laughs> I'll never get tired of that. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, the, the, Coppola's Dracula is is has so many weird tonal shifts and has such a bizarre concept of what it is because it's called Bram Stoker's Dracula. It is not even close to being Bram Stoker's Dracula. Maybe the first half of the film is a little bit where you're getting a lot of lines and a lot of kind of the same narrative beats. But then there's like this whole other subplot that I'm just like, I don't, what is happening even, you know? Um, it's It's also... I'm going to say it now. It's a deeply misogynist film, um, like violently misogynist, and and it's it's one of those films that really does justify violence against women as you know. Okay, we're going we're going to make it okay because they're they're evil, right? Um, they're vampires. We have to you know show Lucy's brutalization um, and rape at one point, but it's okay because she's bad. And, uh, and she's, you know, she's this, she's this woman who's like leading men on all of this stuff, which is kind of there in the original novel, but not to the degree that Coppola takes it. Um, but I think that Coppola's Dracula really does kind of catalyze all of these mainstream terrors about the vampire, this transgressiveness of the sexuality, the, uh, the concept of the blood disease. And you have to remember, this was a film that was released in 1992 and it explicitly references the AIDS crisis um, as an element of vampirism. 
And it's shocking actually to watch it. And I'm always amazed that there are people who are like, oh, I love Coppola's Dragon. It's like, did you pay attention to it? Because there are some things in there that I think maybe you want to think about a little bit before you say like, oh, this is a great film. Um, but it, you know, so this this idea of the, the invading foreign other, you know, Dracula coming into uh, this society, infiltrating society and essentially just wreaking havoc on, on all of these people in the name of love ultimately, um, but still a very sick and uncomfortable love. Like essentially Coppola's Dracula, I think almost without intending to, because I don't think that this is what he was going for necessarily, um, really just sort of catalyzes all of the subsumed terrors that we that we associate with the vampire and just kind of puts it all up on the, onto the screen in a really frightening and horrific and ultimately just very distressing way. Um, but at the same time, kind of tries to normalize the vampire, makes the vampire into this romantic figure. Uh, even more so, I think, than, um, than some of the earlier incarnations of Dracula, simply because it is this sort of love story from beyond the grave, which doesn't really exist in most of the other versions of Dracula. Um, so I don't know if you had anything more to say about that. I wanted to mention it just because I, I think that this that a lot of our current problems with vampires, I think, can be traced to Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, no, I, I think you make a, a very good point. I think that's absolutely true. And, and I think that... Um, <laughs> I think it's one of those movies that, like, you see it at a certain time in life. Like, I mean, I saw it probably in high school and then didn't watch it again for years and always kind of had this romanticized view of what that movie was. Because um, I love Gary Oldman, because I love Keanu Reeves, because, you know, because I just, and, uh, and the story itself is fascinating. And when you watch it again as a much different version of yourself it's like oh this is not the movie i remember it being or you know you know what i mean like it's yeah. just, wow this this all takes on meanings that it did not take for me when i was 16 years old <laughs> yes definitely um so i will let's talk about contemporary vampire stories because there have been a few yeah. Um, and before we get into, I think, the comedic side of vampires, because I really want to talk about what we do in the shadows, um, both the film and the TV show. Uh, before that, one of the things that I've, I've just noticed fairly recently in, in terms of representations of vampires is that, once again, we're falling into these kind of two, two categories, essentially. So you've got the evil walking corpse vampire. Mm -hmm. And you've got the more attractive kind of, like you say, infiltrating vampire. Yeah. Um, and the evil walking corpse one, I think, has is coming, is beginning to be used a lot more. And recently I saw um, the film Boys from County Hell, which uh, is on is on Shutter. It's an Irish film. It was just released this year, I think. Uh, and it does a really interesting thing with kind of the vampire mythology. So what it what it does is that it claims to kind of go back beyond Stoker, right? And in fact, Bram Stoker is referenced in the story as like, oh, Stoker actually, you know, went to this this county, this community in Ireland, and this is where he got the idea for Dracula. Um, as far as I know, not true. <laughs> but but this this is like the conceit of the story and. In this one, the vampire is actually a, a rapacious aristocratic landlord who 
literally drained the blood from the community to the point that they had to to stake him and bury him um, in order to destroy him. But he, through uh, a couple of accidents and bad timing, um, they, the, this crew of road workers, Irish road workers, uh, reawakened this vampire. But one of the interesting things about this is that this is very much the walking corpse vampire. You know, he's not, this is not attractive. This is not, you know, someone that you want to hang out with. He is a very ugly, evil creature. But I found it interesting to actually introduce or reintroduce really this idea of the vampire as an aristocrat who is literally sucking the blood of the community, destroying the community um, in order to, to elongate his own life. And this goes back to a lot of, of vampire lore, right? Vampires are usually represented as being aristocratic. They're, they're upper class. Um, well, honestly, they should be, because they've been around for a long time. If they haven't risen <laughs> to the ranks and amassed a fortune after a couple <laughs> of centuries, then they are stupid and they definitely did something wrong. I mean, even, even when you're talking about, like, you know, um, some of the earliest versions of vampires are, are like, you know, Dracula or Polidori's the vampire. Yeah, they're counts and... Yeah, they're counts and barons and lords, etc. And, and so Almost you have... Like that's a symbol of something, <laughs> I think. But so, yeah, exactly. It becomes really interesting. A lot of the time, um, vampires are, in, and in fact, in uh, in the original Carmilla, which is written by Le Fanu, also an Irishman. Stoker was Irish as well. A lot of this comes from Ireland. Interesting, you've got these stories about rapacious landlords uh, <laughs> who are often English. What was happening in Ireland in the 1800s? <laughs> Hmm. coming out of ireland hmm, irish authors are really interested in this um <laughs> but but so i i like this this you know i hope that we get more of this the, the the vampire as landlord right the vampire as this aristocrat who is sucking people dry literally and and making the the workers the people who live on his land um sort of minions and and I so I like that concept. It's it's similar to uh, and I I hesitate to introduce this film because the director is, has issues, but I actually love this movie, The Fearless Vampire Killers, from uh, I think from the the late sixties. It is directed by Roman Polanski, um, but it has this this element of the vampire's aristocrat, the the vampire in the castle, who. Uh, essentially is literally going down into the town and killing young young women um and and taking their blood one of the things that's introduced in the fearless vampire killers is that the vampire is is christian and most of the his victims are jewish so you've got this really interesting reversal of um representations of vampirism vampires especially in, in very early vampire stories are often associated with um, what's referred to as the blood libel. So the concept of, of Jewish people is literally, you know, stealing and consuming Christian children, right? Um, and, and so vampires are very often represented as, as, you know, stereotypically, these stereotypical elements being Jewish. Well, in this film, what you've got is a sort of reversal of that. The vampires are these Catholics and the victims are the uh, the working class Jews who are being destroyed by the their Christ the Christian overlords. Hmm. So 
there's a lot of interesting shit that goes into all of this. And now you've got something like Boys from County Hell, where you've got this this landlord figure. Um, and I I hope that we're going to get more of that in in cinema because it it's kind of making vampires scary again, uh, and using them to actually address you know income inequity and <laughs> and this kind of long term um, destruction of the working classes by the aristocrats. Yeah, well, we're probably going to get something that's like a. This company is definitely not Amazon, and this person is definitely not Jeff Bezos, this vampire. <laughs> I would be so into that. Like, corporate vampires? Come on. Yep. Come on, guys. There's gotta... This is just ripe for it. Let's go for it. <laughs> exactly. We've sort of done the zombies as the working class. Let's, <laughs> let's deal with the class conflict with vampires. <laughs> yep. Bring it on. Um, so I think we could, we should close out our vampire discussion with what we do in the shadows, mm -hmm. um, yes, we should. which is also interesting in terms of this, this sort of class dynamic, because you've got Nandor in talking about the television show, right? You've got Nandor who is, you know, a literal warlord, right? He's, he's, was the ruler of a vast empire. Yeah. Um, Laszlo, who's, who's an aristocrat and Nadia, who is, who is from a small village with like goat farmers or something yeah who's a peasant and even talks about the fact that you know her family was so poor that they <laughs> they would go to the fair and get one balloon for all 17 children <laughs> they would fight over the balloon and all of it but there are all of these jokes right about Nadja being this you know peasant girl basically mm -hmm. who gets turned by the baron who's an aristocratic vampire and then in herself gains all of this power yeah um, and eventually turns Laszlo, et cetera. So it's it's an interest. There are actually really interesting elements of class dynamic going on within this microcosm of vampires. They're also funny. So funny. <laughs> uh, and they're also scary. One of the things I like about what we do in the shadows is the fact that these are vampires who kill people. Yeah. Constantly, like that's what they do. They go and sometimes out. Sometimes you feel bad <laughs> for the people they kill. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I like the fact that it's a show and the, the original film, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, takes this concept of vampires eat people, but also they can be good neighbors yeah. and they can be friendly, you know, and they have a certain kind of morality about, you know. If they have a code, they don't go eating their neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. I, I I love I mean the the movie the reason the movie worked so well and and because it came out in what 2014 I think and um, yeah, it sounds right yeah and it it started off as just like this goofy movie that was popping up at some film festivals I first saw it because it was at AFI and people were like oh my gosh you have to I'd never heard of Taika Waititi before I had never heard of Jemaine Clements before. And um, definitely had not seen anything that they had done. And then I watched it and I was just like, huh, this is such a clever concept. Because I had never thought about like, you know, the behind the scenes, like real world life of vampires. <laughs> and it was just so funny. And, and what I liked is that it was like, you know obviously this is fictional, but as, you know, as realistic, you know, about like what their lives would be like and hey, here are some of the challenges of being a vampire in the 21st century and, and, but also like you say, there's, they're, they're scary and they are 
bad. They they kill people. And they kill people who don't even deserve it. They kill innocent people. And, um, but it's just done in such a way where you're just like, well, yeah, what are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I really like that. And I like the, the, um, in, in the show, I like the fact that, you know, you've got Guillermo, who is a vampire killer. Mm-hmm. Um, really, but is really a- desperately wants to be a vampire. <laughs> and, and is, a, but is also kind of coming into his own as a vampire bodyguard, right? Yeah. So you've got all of these actually really interesting elements and this interesting issue of morality because Guillermo is the one who brings them victims a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and disposes of the bodies right and so on the one hand you're like these are evil creatures right they're murdering people constantly yeah but they also have a certain kind of moral code they have a certain like understanding you know it's it's rude to do certain things in the vampire world (laughs) Um, there are much worse vampires, right? I mean, the entire first season is about whether or not they're going to try to take over the world, um, or at least Staten Island, which right. they they don't do. But then even the Baron, who's you know shown as being this, he's kind of the quintessential the walking corpse vampire, right? Uh, turns out to not be such a bad guy. Like kind of like the Baron. He likes to party. He does. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I just remembered the episode where they go out, Baron's night out. Yeah. <laughs> and they like eat pizza and he starts projectile vomiting everywhere. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's just like, yes, the Baron is now flying around propelled by his own vomit. So that's happening. Oh, one of my favorite lines ever, though, is still Nandor. We drank the blood of some people, but the people were on drugs, and now I am a wizard. <laughs> Uh, just that idea of like vampires getting high is so funny that that like yeah they they really spin things out so vampires can't drink alcohol right right but they can drink the blood of people who have consumed alcohol and get drunk that way <laughs> exactly yeah so you yeah. get like those those drunk like laszlo getting falling down drunk in one episode <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Um, and also they're just they're really messy and gross i think that's such a funny touch too with this group you know like the like when there's i think it was the first season the orgy episode and naja is all upset because lazo's just gonna spew everywhere you know <laughs> <laughs> and and then poor guillermo's always having to like clean everything up and and yeah like they're just i love it 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 also, it, well, I was gonna say, it also brings back one of the elements of vampire lore that often doesn't get talked about. But this is true, all, going all the way back to Dracula and beyond. Vampires are really dumb. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they, in some ways, you've got the reason why they're successful for as long as they are is because they're really powerful, but they're also incredibly stupid. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that I think what we do in the shadows does really well is just be like, these are not smart individuals. They really think that they're superior. And they've been alive for so long that they're just dumber than fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like if you've been around all this time, you've seen the rise of technology. How do you not learn about it? You know, and they just don't. But they probably wouldn't. Have, I mean, especially in the case of someone like Nandor. Like, historically, a lot of rulers and monarchs and, and stuff going back into the centuries were not bright people. 
<laughs> and they were surrounded by advisors and stuff who basically were making the decisions and calling the shots for them. <laughs> and yeah, I think they do a good job of, of uh, tying, tying that stuff in. Definitely. It's kind of like serial killers. Like if you really study serial killers, it's not that they're actually so smart. It's just that they get so underestimated. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think this is a good place to, to close things up because one of the things that is often said about vampires is that the power of the vampire is that people don't believe in them. Yes. And that is absolutely true. That's how vampires in, in most films are so successful is that no one will believe that vampires actually exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how Dracula survives. That's how the vampires and what we do in the shadows survive. <laughs> no one believes in them. And, true. <laughs> and so they survive. So, yeah, I think it's a good place to close out our vampire discussion. Yeah. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, Karen? Um, just that we're going to add another letterbox list. It'll be vampire movies. And we'll have all the ones we've mentioned, plus stuff like probably you know near dark and yeah i can't even think of others right now but near yeah, dark, dark only lovers left alive oh yeah mm-hmm. um john carpenter's vampires uh all the different draculas oh that was my other question for you so you put yeah. the poll out on our twitter but for you who played the best dracula bella lugosi yeah, I, I have to say, I think Bela Lugosi, and actually I recently rewatched Dracula, um, and he's just, I, and some of it I think is just because he's so iconic, like everyone who comes after him basically is either doing an anti-Bela Lugosi <laughs> or is, is like kind of repeating some of the same beats, but he really is. He's so good and he's so compelling to watch, even in, you know, ultimately it's, it's kind of a stilted and, and bizarre film in a lot of ways, but he is just so compelling. And the way that he intones certain things, and a lot of it is simply because the, the, the dude cannot speak very good English at the time. <laughs> right. um, so he's like sounding out some of his words a little bit. But, um, you know, the blood is the life, Mr. Renfield. You know, all of that stuff is just so well done and it focuses you on him so much that, like, when he's off screen, just like, where's Bella Lugosi? I want yeah. Bella Lugosi back. So, yeah. <laughs> yep, I agree. He's, he's definitely my favorite. I think Christopher Lee comes, comes a close second. Christopher Lee's good. I just, I actually just watched that this week. So, I had never seen his before. So the uh the one with the the original one the horror of dracula the one from 1970 oh uh is that count dracula count dracula yeah yeah and then his, the first one that he did is 1956 i think oh, I didn't is see that one. it's called horror of dracula that is on peacock i believe oh, okay um so you can watch that and my my personal favorite is the brides of dracula which has nothing whatsoever to do with dracula um, Dracula is not in the movie, but Peter <laughs> Cushing as Van Helsing oh my is, God. and Peter Cushing as Van Helsing is wonderful. Like I love Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. <laughs> he is just oh, I just remembered Richard Roxburgh plays Dracula in Van Helsing with uh, Hugh Jackman. Yep, yep, I loved Richard <laughs> Roxburgh too. Like yeah. he he understood the assignment in that in that he film. Did. I think he's one of the only he's ones the who only does. One in that movie, did. <laughs> But he's just like, I am going to be so camp, you can't even breathe. Exactly. (laughs) 
so so yeah we're gonna put up a whole bunch of vampire movies i got a long list of vampire movies (laughs) sure you do i'm counting on it (laughs) so i think that is going to close us out for this week thank you so much for listening to us uh ramble on about vampires um as always we want to thank our patrons who include adriana ali heather james kathleen cariata mason matt michelle monty nanina Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for supporting us. We do have some bonus episodes that are coming up very shortly. Um, If you want to support our our continued podcast, uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash citizen dame. You get some fun stuff, including bonus episodes, and we're getting some new buttons made, so that should be a lot of fun. Uh, we also have our Zazzle store, Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame Pod. And we have a Ko-Fi, Ko-Fi.com slash Citizen Dame. If you just want to throw us a couple of dollars without, you know, making the, the Patreon commitment. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, we have our website, CitizenDamePod.com. Karen's review of The Last Duel is up there. I'm going to have a few more reviews coming up, hopefully very soon, now that I've more or less dug myself out of, from underneath a mountain of work. <laughs> Um, so do check out our website. You can also get in touch with us uh, via email, citizendamepod at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod and on Letterboxd, where we will have lists associated with various episodes and including a bunch of ongoing lists. And that is at citizendame. Of course, you can get in touch with us individually. I am on Twitter and Instagram at lhbusiness. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And that will close us out for this week. We will talk to you later. Bye. I am Dracula. It's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and... Well, and with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome.